Hey sis, welcome back to Girl Goodnight. I'm Return of Lamech, and every Sunday you can relax to binaural beats while I read you a melanated bedtime story. Tap into the show on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. All links will be in the episode description. Submit original work and future episode suggestions to girlgoodnightpodcast at gmail.com. Help your friends sleep in melanated peace. Girl, share the show and show us some love with a five-star rating and review. Tonight, we will be reading The Comet, written by W.E.B. Du Bois in 1920. William Edward Burgard Du Bois was born in Great Barrington, Massachusetts in 1868. He was a sociologist, socialist, historian, civil rights activist, writer, and editor. He studied at the University of Berlin and became the first African American to receive a PhD from Harvard University in 1895. Among his many accomplishments, he helped found the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, also known as the NAACP, edited the NAACP journal entitled The Crisis, and authored many works such as The Souls of Black Folk and Dusk of Dawn. On August 27, 1963, just one day before the March on Washington and one year before the Civil Rights Act of 1964, W.E.B. Du Bois died in Accra, Ghana at the age of 95. The science fiction story The Comet is chapter 10 of a collection of stories entitled Dark Water Voices from Within the Veil. Set in New York City, the story details the relationship between Jim Davis and Julia after discovering that a comet hit the city, leaving them the only survivors. In this episode, Jim Davis meets Julia and the two explore New York City in search of any other survivors. Tune in next week for the continuation of the story on part two. Due to the era in which this story was written, it contains language that is racially offensive. To maintain the integrity of the story and the author's intent, the language will be read as it is written. Please listen at your own discretion. Now, close your eyes, take a deep breath, and sleep in melanated peace. The Comet He stood a moment on the steps of the bank, watching the human river that swirled down Broadway. Few noticed him. Few ever noticed him save in a way that stung. He was outside the world. Nothing, as he said bitterly. Bits of the words of the walkers came to him. The Comet the comet. Everybody was talking of it. Even the president as he entered smiled patronizingly at him and asked, Well, Jim, are you scared? No, said the messenger shortly. I thought we'd journeyed through the comet's tail once, broke in the junior Kirk affably. Oh, that was Haley's, said the president. This is a new comet, quite a stranger, they say. Wonderful, wonderful. I saw it last night. Oh, by the way, Jim, 
turning again to the messenger. I want you to go down into the lower vaults today. The messenger followed the president silently. Of course they wanted him to go down to the lower vaults. It was too dangerous for more valuable men. He smiled grimly and listened. Everything of value has been moved out since the water began to seep in, said the president, but we missed two volumes of old records. Suppose you nose around down there. It isn't very pleasant, I suppose. Not very, said the messenger as he walked out. Well, Jim, the tale of the new comet hits us at noon this time, said the vault clerk as he passed over the keys, but the messenger passed silently down the stairs. Down he went beneath Broadway, where the dim light filtered through the feet of hurrying men, down to the dark basement beneath, down into the blackness and silence beneath that lowest tavern. Here with his dark lantern, he groped in the bowels of the earth, under the world. He drew a long breath as he threw back the last great iron door and stepped into the fetid slime within. Here at last was peace, and he groped moodily forward. A great rat leapt past him, and cobwebs crept across his face. He felt carefully around the room, shelf by shelf, on the muddied floor, and in crevice and corner. Nothing. Then he went back to the far end, where somehow the wall felt different. He sounded and pushed and pried. Nothing. He started away, then something brought him back. He was sounding and working again, when suddenly the whole black wall swung as on mighty hinges and blackness yawned beyond. He peered in, it was evidently a secret vault, some hiding place of the old bank unknown in newer times. He entered hesitatingly. It was a long, narrow room with shelves, and at the far end, an old iron chest. On a high shelf lay the two missing volumes of records and others. He put them carefully aside and stepped to the chest. It was old, strong, and rusty. He looked at the vast and old-fashioned lock and flashed his light on the hinges. They were deeply encrusted with rust. Looking about, he found a bit of iron and began to pry. The rust had eaten a hundred years and it had gone deep. Slowly, wearily, the old lid lifted and with a last low groan lay Barrett's treasure and he saw the dull sheen of gold. Boom! A low, grinding, reverberating crash struck upon his ear. He started up and looked about. All was black and still. He groped for his light and swung it about him. Then he knew. The great stone door had swung too. He forgot the gold and looked death squarely in the face. Then, with a sigh, he methodically went to work. The cold sweat stood on his forehead, but he searched, pounded, pushed, and worked until after what seemed endless hours, his hand struck a cold bit of metal and the great door swung again harshly on its hinges. 
and then striking against something soft and heavy, stopped. He had just room to squeeze through. There lay the body of the vault clerk, cold and stiff. He stared at it and then felt sick and nauseated. The air seemed unaccountably foul with a strong, peculiar odor. He stepped forward, clutched at the air, and fell, fainting across the corpse. He awoke with a sense of horror, leaped from the body, and groped up the stairs calling to the guard. The watchman sat as if asleep with the gate swinging free. With one glance at him, the messenger hurried up to the sub vault. In vain, he called to the guards. His voice echoed and re-echoed weirdly. Up into the great basement he rushed. Here another guard lay prostrate on his face, cold and still. A fear arose in the messenger's heart. He dashed up the cellar floor, up into the bank. The stillness of death lay everywhere, and everywhere bowed, bent, and stretched the silent forms of men. The messenger paused and glanced about. He was not a man easily moved, but the sight was appalling. Robbery and murder, he whispered slowly to himself as he saw the twisted, oozing mouth of the president where he lay half buried on his desk. Then a new thought seized him. If they found him here alone, with all this money and all these dead men, what would his life be worth? He glanced about, tiptoed cautiously to a side door, and again looked behind. Quietly, he turned the latch and stepped out into Wall Street. How silent the street was. Not a soul was stirring, and yet it was high noon. Wall Street? Broadway? He glanced almost wildly up and down, then across the street, and as he looked, a sickening horror rose in his limbs. With a choking cry of utter fright, he lunged, leaned giddily against the cold building, and stared helplessly at the sight. In the great stone doorway, a hundred men and women and children lay crushed and twisted and jammed, forced into that great gaping doorway like refuse in a can, as if in one wild, frantic rush to safety, they had rushed and ground themselves to death. Slowly, the messenger crept along the walls, wetting his parched mouth and trying to comprehend, stilling the tremor in his limbs and the rising terror in his heart. He met a businessman, silk-hatted and frock-coated, who had crept too along that smooth wall and stood now stone dead with wonder written on his lips. The messenger turned his eyes hastily away and sought the curb. A woman leaned wearily against the signpost, her head bowed motionless on her lace and silken bosom. Before her stood a streetcar, silent and within, but the messenger glanced and hurried on. A grimy newsboy sat in the gutter with the last edition in his uplifted hand. Danger, screamed its black headlines, warnings wired around the world. The comet's tail sweeps past us at noon. Deadly gas is expected. Close doors and windows. Seek the cellar. The messenger read and staggered on. 
Far out from a window above, a girl lay with gasping face and sleevelets on her arms. On a sore step sat a little sweet-faced girl looking upward toward the skies, and in the carriage by her lay, but the messenger looked no longer. The cords gave way, the terror burst in his veins, and with one great gasping cry, he sprang desperately forward and ran, ran as only the frightened run, shrieking and fighting the air, until with one last wail of pain, he sank on the grass of Madison Square and lay prone and still. When he rose, he gave no glance at the still and silent forms on the benches, but going to a fountain, bathed his face, then hiding himself in a corner away from the drama of death, he quietly gripped himself and thought the thing through. The comet had swept the earth, and this was the end. Was everybody dead? He must search and see. He knew that he must steady himself and keep calm, or he would go insane. First, he must go to a restaurant. He walked up Fifth Avenue to a famous hostelry and entered its gorgeous ghost-haunted halls. He beat back the nausea and, seizing a tray from dead hands, hurried into the street and ate ravenously, hiding to keep out the sights. Yesterday they would not have served me, he whispered as he forced the food down. Then he started up the street, looking, peering, telephoning, ringing alarms, silent, silent all. Was nobody, nobody? He dared not to think the thought and hurried on. Suddenly he stopped still. He had forgotten. My God, how could he have forgotten? He must rush to the subway. Then he almost laughed. No, a car if he could find a four. He saw one. Gently he lifted off its burden and took his place on the seat. He tested the throttle. There was gas. He glided off, shivering, and drove up the street. Everywhere stood, leaned, lounged, and lay the dead in grim and awful silence. On he ran past an automobile wrecked and overturned, past another filled with a gay party whose smiles yet lingered on their death-struck lips, on past crowds and groups of cars pausing by dead policemen. At 42nd Street, he had to detour to Park Avenue to avoid the dead congestion. He came back on 5th Avenue at 57th and flew past the plaza and by the park with its hushed babies and silent throng until, as he was rushing past 72nd Street, he heard a sharp cry and saw a living form leaning wildly out an upper window. He gasped. The human voice sounded in his ears like the voice of God. Hello? Hello? Help! In God's name! wailed the woman. There's a dead girl in here, and a man, and, and see yonder, dead men lying in the street, and dead horses. For the love of God, go and bring the officers. And the worlds trailed off into hysterical tears. He wheeled the car in a sudden circle, running over the still body of a child and leaping on the curb. Then he rushed up the steps and tried the door 
and rang violently. There was a long pause, but at last the heavy door swung back. They stared a moment in silence. She had not noticed before that he was a Negro. He had not thought of her as white. She was a woman of perhaps 25, rarely beautiful and richly gowned with darkly golden hair and jewels. Yesterday, he thought with bitterness, she would have scarcely looked at him twice. He would have been dirt beneath her silken feet. She stared at him. Of all the sorts of men she had pictured as coming to her rescue, she had not dreamed of one like him. Not that he was not human, but he dwelt in a world so far from hers, so infinitely far that he seldom even entered her thought. Yet as she looked at him curiously, he seemed quite commonplace and usual. He was a tall, dark, working man of the better class with a sensitive face trained to stolidity and a poor man's clothes and hands. His face was soft and slow and his manner at once cold and nervous, like fires long banked but not out. So a moment each paused and gauged the other. Then the thought of the dead world without rushed in and they started toward each other. What has happened? She cried. Tell me. Nothing stirs. All is in silence. I see the dead strewn before my window as winnowed by the breath of God. And see? She dragged him through the great silken hangings to where Beneath the sheen of mahogany and silver, a little French maid lay stretched in quiet, everlasting sleep, and near her a butler lay prone in his livery. The tears streamed down the woman's cheeks, and she clung to his arm until the perfume of her breath swept his face and he felt the tremors racing through her body. I had been shut up in my dark room, developing pictures of the comet which I took last night. When I came out, I saw the dead. What has happened? She cried again. He answered slowly. Something, comet or devil, swept across the earth this morning and many are dead. Many? Very many? I have searched and I have seen no other living soul but you. She gasped and they stared at each other. My father she whispered. Where is he? He started for the office. Where is it? In the Metropolitan Tower. Leave a note for him here and come. Then he stopped. No, he said firmly. First, we must go to Harlem. Harlem, she cried. Then she understood. She tapped her foot at first impatiently. She looked back and shuddered. Then she came resolutely down the steps. There's a swifter car in the garage in the court, she said. I don't know how to drive it, he said. I do, she answered. In 10 minutes, they were flying to Harlem on the wind. The studs rose and raced like an airplane. They took the turn at 110th Street on two wheels and slipped with a shriek into 135th. He was gone but a moment. Then he returned and his face was gray. 
she did not look, but said, You have lost somebody? I have lost everybody, he said, simply and less. He ran back and was gone several minutes, hours they seemed to her. Everybody, he said, and he walked slowly back with something film-like in his hand, which he stuffed into his pocket. I'm afraid I was selfish, he said, but already the car was moving toward the park among the dark and lying dead of Harlem. The brown still faces, the knotted hands, the homely garments, and the silence, the wild and haunting silence. Out of the park and down Fifth Avenue they whirled. In and out among the dead they slipped and quivered, needing no sound of bell or horn until the great square metropolitan tower hove in sight. Gently he laid the dead elevator boy aside. The car shot upward. The door of the office stood open. On the threshold lay the stenographer and staring at her sat the dead clerk. The inner office was empty, but a note lay on the desk, folded and addressed but unsent. Dear daughter, I've gone for a hundred mile spin in Fred's new Mercedes. Shall not be back before dinner. I'll bring Fred with me. J.B.H. Come, she cried nervously. We must search the city. Up and down, over and across, back again, on went that ghostly search. Everywhere was silence and death, death and silence. They hunted from Madison Square to Spitendival. They rushed across the Williamsburg Bridge. They swept over Brooklyn. From the Battery and Morningside Heights, they scanned the river. Silence, silence everywhere, and no human sign. Haggard and bedraggled, they puffed a third time slowly down Broadway under the broiling sun and at last stopped. He sniffed the air, an odor, a smell, and with the shifting breeze, a sickening stench filled their nostrils and brought its awful warning. The girl settled back helplessly in her seat. What can we do? she cried. It was his turn now to take the lead, and he did it quickly. The long-distance telephone, the telegraph, and the cable, night rockets, and then flight. She looked at him now with the strength and confidence. He did not look like men as she had always pictured men, but he acted like one, and she was content. In 15 minutes, they were at the central telephone exchange. As they came to the door, he stepped quickly before her and pressed her gently back as he closed it. She heard him moving to and fro and knew his burdens, the poor little burdens he bore. When she entered, he was alone in the room. The grim switchboard flashed its metallic face in cryptic sphinx-like immobility. She seated herself on a stool and donned the bright earpiece. She looked at the mouthpiece. She had never looked at one so closely before. It was wide and black, pimpled with usage, inert, dead, 
almost sarcastic in its unfeeling curves. It looked, she beat back the thought, but it looked, it persisted in looking like. She turned her head and found herself alone. One moment she was terrified, then she thanked him silently for his delicacy and turned resolutely with a quick intaking of breath. Hello, she called in low tones. She was calling to the world. The world must answer. Would the world answer? Was the world silence? She had spoken too low. Hello, she cried full voiced. She listened, silent. Her heart beat quickly. She cried in clear, distinct, loud tones. Hello? 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 What was that worry? Surely, no. Was it the click of a receiver? She bent close. She moved the pegs into the holes and called and called until her voice rose almost to a shriek and her heart hammered. It was as if she had heard the last flicker of creation and the evil was silence. Her voice dropped to a sob. She sat stupidly staring into the black and sarcastic mouthpiece and the thought came again. Hope lay dead within her. Yes, the cable and the rockets remained, but the world, she could not frame the thought or say the word. It was too mighty, too terrible. She turned toward the door with a new fear in her heart. For the first time, she seemed to realize that she was alone in the world with a stranger, with something more than a stranger, with a man alien in blood and culture, unknown, perhaps unknowable. It was awful. She must escape. She must fly. He must not see her again. Who knew what awful thoughts? She gathered her silken shirts deftly about her young, smooth limbs, listened and glided into a side hall. A moment she shrank back. The hall lay filled with dead women. Then she leaped to the door and tore at it with bleeding fingers until it swung wide. She looked out. He was standing at the top of the alley, silhouetted, tall and black, motionless. Was he looking at her or away? She did not know. She did not care. She simply leaped and ran, ran until she found herself alone amid the dead and the tall ramparts of towering buildings. She stopped. She was alone, alone, alone on the streets, alone in the city, perhaps alone in the world. There crept in upon her the sense of deception, of creeping hands behind her back, of silent, moving things she could not see, of voices hushed in fearsome conspiracy. She looked behind and sideways, started at strange sounds and heard still stranger until every nerve within her stood sharp and quivering, stretched to scream at the barest touch. She whirled and flew back, whimpering like a child until she found that narrow alley again and the dark silent figure silhouetted at the top. 
She stopped and rested. Then she walked silently toward him, looked at him timidly, but he said nothing as he handed her into the car. Her voice caught as she whispered, Not that. And he answered slowly, No, not that. They climbed into the car. She bent forward on the wheel and sobbed with great, dry, quivering sobs as they flew toward the cable office on the east side, leaving the world of wealth and prosperity for the world of poverty and work. In the world behind them were death and silence, grave and grim, almost cynical, but always decent. Here, it was hideous. It clothed itself in every ghastly form of terror, struggle, hate, and suffering. It lay wreathed in crime and squalor, greed and lust. Only in its dread and awful silence was it like to death everywhere. You still up? Girl, good night.